0: Evidence and Answers. It does not take long to see that America is headed down a dangerous path. As she continues to turn away from God and His moral law, can she remain free and strong? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each week, Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. Today, we will continue on with part two of a message Dr. Richard Land started the last time we were together, entitled, America at the Crossroads, from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Each year, Pat hosts this conference, which features some of the premier Christian scholars and apologists from around this nation. Our theme this year was, Can We Be Good Without God? and featured noted Christian scholars, Dr. Richard Land and Kirby Anderson. Dr. Richard Land exposes dangerous trends, but also reasons for faith and hope. Let's join him now as he concludes this message.
1: Each one of us is unique, and God has a unique plan and purpose for our lives. And for the young people that are here, let me say to you, God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. You need to find out what it is, and no one can do as good a job of being the you that God created you to be, as you can. And for those of us who are older, you may have gotten off that path. All I can say to you is that you may God may be disappointed with where you are tonight, but God's not surprised. And God has a plan and a purpose from where you are right now for the rest of your life. That is good. It's the source of joy. Now, when I was pastor of a church in England while I was doing my doctorate at Oxford, I had a couple come to me who wanted to get married and I always require six counseling sessions. I don't marry anybody that doesn't do six counseling sessions. That's a good way to help some some bad marriages not happen. It's also a good way to prevent a lot of problems before they get married. And uh, after the second session, I told this couple that I could not marry them. That it would be I, I would be negligent before God if I married them. That they had no business getting married and I pleaded with them and begged them not to get married. Well, they got married anyway. Well, six months later, the bride came to see me and she said, Dr. Lynn, you were right. I shouldn't have married my husband, but now I've found the person that I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life with. And he's gonna leave his wife, and I'm gonna leave my husband, and we're gonna get married. What do you think about that? Now." I was going to tell her anyway, but she did ask. And I said, "I said, honey, you think God wants you to be sad? You think God wants you to be depressed? I said, now, who do you think knows more about what's going to make you happy? The God of the universe or you? The God who made you or you? And I then told her that we don't break God's laws, they break us if we disobey them. And that it was not God's will for her to leave the husband that she now had, and for her paramour to leave his wife, and that if they started off in that direction, they should expect to get judged by God and judged rather severely. God's will for our lives is the source of joy. And she started to say, I just want to be happy. I said, Well,. Who do you think knows more about what's going to make you happy, the God of the universe, or you? When you put it that way, it's sort of a dumb question. God's will for our lives is the source of joy. It's good. And it's acceptable. Now, the word acceptable there, a good translation into English would be tailor-made. God's will for your life is tailor-made. It's made just for you. It fits you. It's not made for anybody else. When I, I'll never forget the first tailor-made suit that I got. It was part of a love offering for a youth revival that I did many, many, many years ago. Uh, I've been preaching now for 52 years. I started preaching when I was 16, and I'll save you the arithmetic, I'm 68. I remember when I got this tailor-made suit, I mean, I'd never had a suit fit me like that. I mean, at the time, now this was a long time ago, I thought I was a 42 long, <laughs> alas. And I discovered that I had one arm that was a little bit longer than the other one. and I discovered that I was long-waisted and short-legged, that when I sit down, I tower over people. And when I stand up, I don't get much taller. And yet, when I was wearing that suit, I looked good. I mean, I looked better than I'd ever looked in a suit. Because that suit was not an off-the-rack sort of suit. It was a suit made for me god's will for your life is tailor-made it is the source of joy and it's tailor-made and it's perfect now the word perfect there is the word teleos it means complete there's not anything that you need in your life that is not in god's will for your life now i didn't say that everything you want is in god's will for your life because you can want stuff that's not good for you you know the israelites They said, God, we want a king. He said, no, you don't really want a king. Oh, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. So he gave them a king, and they didn't want a king. Now, this was brought home to me in a new way. When I was in Hawaii, actually, it was the first time I came to Hawaii. We were doing a prophecy conference out on Kualima Point. They were filming Magnum P.I. out there. And I came down into the lobby, and Tom Selleck was in the lobby. And every woman from 6 to 60 in that hotel was in the lobby. And now he was a good-looking guy. I mean, you know, he was better looking in person than he was on television. I mean, he was a good-looking guy, big guy, friendly, having his picture taken with everybody, signing autographs. And I'm standing behind a prominent Southern Baptist evangelist, who shall remain nameless, and his wife. And this guy looked nothing like Tom Selleck this guy looked like what you would imagine Huck Finn looked like when he grew up He had red hair not much of it freckles and he's a great preacher but he was no dreamboat and he says to his wife he says oh honey I always wanted to look like that she she sort of hit his arm like this she said honey if you look like that you wouldn't be a Baptist preacher (laughs) and I thought well you see I always thought that life would be much better for me if I looked like Cary Grant. Now I know I'm dating myself here but I mean when I was a teenager I thought Cary Grant was sort of the you know I mean man, that man, it must be great being Cary Grant. And, and when I went places people said has anybody ever told you you look like Perry Mason? <laughs> and I was just glad if they didn't say Ironside. Well, then it hit me that probably if I looked like Cary Grant, I might not be a Baptist preacher. Everything you want may not be in God's will for your life because you can want things that are not good for you. But everything that you need in your life is in God's will for your life. Now, that's, in my opinion, a New Testament commentary on Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will i hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land and it's going to be one christian by one christian by one christian one husband one wife one mom one dad one son one daughter one somebody you when we he says confess our sins seek his face pray and seek his face now what does it mean pray and seek his face that means understanding that prayer is supposed to be a dialogue, not a monologue. We're supposed to make our petitions known to him, cast our cares on him for he cares for us, but, and we confess our sin. But there comes a point in prayer where we're supposed to shut up and let him talk to us and let him reveal to us more about who we are and why it is he created us as the unique person that each of us is. Now, I'm gonna tell you, if you listen, God will talk to you. I remember one very startling event in my life. My wife has a PhD in psychology, and when we were younger, we used to do a lot of marriage retreats where we would go and, and she'd do the counseling stuff, and I would do the biblical stuff. And I'm in, the, in my study, going over my notes, getting make sure I've got everything squared away, and God asked me a question. Now, I don't know if you'd been in the room with me you would have heard it, but I heard it. And here's the question. Richard, are you the kind of husband you want your daughters to marry? I didn't like all the answers I got to that question. I mean, you know, I was a pretty involved dad. I changed them and fed them and bathed them as much as their mother did and was blessed by it. And the most meaningful thing, the most gratifying thing I've done in my entire life is be a father but I didn't like all the answers I got to that question and right then and there I started a road to being a better husband because you see I was writing the job description every day for what my daughters are going to expect in a husband just like mothers you're writing the job description every day for what your son is going to expect in a wife Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. And when we pray and humble ourselves and seek his face, he talks to us. And he moves us closer to his will for our lives. Now, if we're going to have a revival that's going to ripen into an awakening and become a reformation, it starts one way only. It starts with individual believers claiming the promise of Romans 12:1 and 2. Where we stand still and we let the Holy Spirit transform our minds and we put it to the test and discover that it's true. That God's will for our lives is good, acceptable, and perfect. It's the source of joy It's tailor made and it's complete. And it involves being salt and light. Jesus commanded every one of us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in Matthew chapter 5. He saw the decay and the darkness of the world and he withdraws and he turns to the disciples and he says, You are to be the salt of the earth and you are to be the light of the world. Now, salt has to touch that which it's going to preserve. Now, I carry beef jerky with me everywhere I go. Two reasons. One, as a sixth generation Texan, it's my patriotic duty, to eat some part of a cow every day. Second, I keep an odd travel schedule. Doesn't matter what time I get in, that beef jerky sitting there in my briefcase, succulent, flavorful, and ready to go. Why? Because it's had salt rubbed into it. And the salt stops the putrefaction process. It stops the rot. Now, if I had salt in my briefcase and I had steak in my suitcase, they'd be separating my luggage at the airport pretty quick because it would have a stench. And Jesus said, you are to be the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That means we've got to be close enough to the world that they can see the light and feel the heat. If we're going to be obedient to the command to be salt and light, there's no room for us to withdraw from the world and go into a spiritual holding pattern until it's time to go up and be with Jesus. We are to go out into the world and we're to be salt. That means we are to be a a spiritual disinfectant, a spiritual preservative against decay and rot that is caused by sin. There ought to be a direct, direct relationship Between the number of Christians in a community or a state and the spiritual status of that community or state. And we're to be the light of the world. Light penetrates the darkness. Light illuminates the gloom. Light shows the way. Light brings life. Now, how would we apply that to issues? Well, how about the abortion issue? Salt would say, stop the killing. Stop the killing. Stop the child sacrifice. Light says, God never created a nobody. Everybody's a somebody to God. Now, I've been preaching 52 years. I'm well nigh unshockable. I mean, you know, the last time I can remember being shocked, I was interim pastor of a church, and an 82-year-old lady who had never been married came to me to confess a current, ongoing, adulterous affair with an 83-year-old man in the church. That's what I thought. I, on, the, on the outside, I'm going, oh. On the inside, I'm going, Why? But this happened to me, this, this one I'm getting ready to tell you happened to me. Uh, I know it shocked me at first, but it doesn't shock me anymore. Every time I talk about the abortion issue, every time I talk about the sanctity of human life issue, I have someone come up to me afterward and say, thank you, Pastor. Thank you for speaking up for special children. Our family has learned so much about the really important things in life that we would never have learned had God not sent a special child into our lives now why did that shock me because all three times my wife told me she was pregnant The first thing I did was pray Lord help them be healthy help them be normal help them have all their fingers and toes here are moms and dads and brothers and sisters coming to me and saying thank you for speaking up for special children because we've learned so many important things in life by God sending a special child into our lives God never created a nobody ever Now, when it comes to sex, being salt means we try to stop the plague and the tidal wave of pornography, which is spiritual and emotional toxic waste that is maiming and twisting and distorting and stunting the lives of hundreds of thousands of boys and men every day and keeping them from becoming the fathers and the husbands and the men that God intended them to be. The average age of exposure now to hardcore pornography in the United States is 11. Twice now, twice, the Congress of the United States on a bipartisan basis has passed laws and they were signed first by Bill Clinton and secondly by George W. Bush that would put the same restrictions on the internet that we have on adult bookstores. You gotta prove you're 18. You gotta prove you're an adult to get in. Both times, the Supreme Court has struck down the law because they are saying that an adult's supposed right to see whatever they want to see trumps society's obligation to protect children from that which is toxic waste and harmful to them. We can get a better decision from the first 500 people in the Honolulu phone book. And it's time we quit putting up with that kind of nonsense. But light, being light tells, we need to tell folks Sex isn't dirty, sex is holy. God created sex. And he created sex to make of two people one person. And he uses the husband-wife relationship to describe his relationship with Israel in the Old Testament. He uses the bride-bridegroom relationship to describe Jesus' relationship with the church in the New Testament. And Hebrews 13 tells us the marriage bed is honorable and undefiled. And we need to tell our young people that if they want to have a happy marriage, they need not to engage in premarital sex because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the worst kind of sin is sexual sin because every other sin is done outside the body. But God created the sex act to make of two people one person, and that happens whether we are aware of it, whether we desire it, whether we want it or not. When we engage in a sexual relationship with someone, we become part of that person and they become part of us. A person who is engaged in sexual intercourse is different than a person who hasn't. And a person who's engaged in multiple, with multiple partners is a different person than the person who has remained chaste and monogamous. Why do we have such a high divorce rate in this country? Well, we're told the average American males had eight sex partners before he gets married, and the average American females had four. I count that 14 people on the honeymoon. They can get a group rate. We have a lot of evidence now, a lot of evidence that shows if you want to get married and stay married and be happily married, save yourself for your partner. That's being light. Now, take your workbooks and turn with me to this vision that I've talked about. Let's imagine a future for America. If we, have, if we keep going in the direction we're going, on page 28, John Lennon's dream for America. A neo-paganist triumph, ushering in widespread decline on the issues that matter most. Human life will become much more commodified. Clone plantations would would produce Frankenstein tragedies. Women would sell their eggs in the name of producing engineered children. There would be an abundant harvest of fetal tissue to prolong the lives of narcissistic people. Children would be vulnerable to the sexual appetites of adults. The age of consent would drop. We would have homosexuality as a perfectly accepted behavior, an affirmed behavior. And we would have, as I said, the lowering of the age of consent as it has been in Europe. The sexual abuse and molestation of children would multiply exponentially. It already has, but it would be even more so. A six-year-old girl in America has a one-in-three chance of being sexually molested by the time she's 16. A six-year-old boy has a one-in-five chance. Why is that? Because... You know, see, we've been numbed into this because we're the, we're the frog in the kettle. Over the last 40 years, we've had more children reared in homes with men to whom they are not biologically related than any civilization in human history. They're called stepfathers, stepbrothers, and boyfriends. And that's been a recipe for an epidemic of sexual child abuse. Pornography would be at epidemic proportions, it almost is now. Hardcore pornography would be regular fare on television. Religious freedom would be snuffed out. Neo-pagan orthodoxy would be extremely intolerant of any opponent. When you're engulfed in moral relativism, the one thing you can't allow is people who believe in absolutes. The one thing you can't tolerate is people who believe that some things are always right and some things are always wrong, namely us. Those who hold the Judeo-Christian worldview would find themselves vilified at best, and legally restricted at worst for opposing neo-pagan ideology. The one thing abject moral relativists cannot tolerate is people who believe in moral absolutes. Even a false vision has great power. Imagine what a true vision of biblical transformation would be like if we had enough Christians live through the experience of Romans 12, 1 and 2 and have their lives transformed and begin to live as God would have them live. In your city, the last rape occurred three years ago. Rape would drop through the floor. The local prison would be converted to a museum because there would be so few prisoners. Women and children could walk the streets without fear of physical or sexual assault. Students could walk the hallways of public schools with little, if any, thought for their physical safety. Four out of five nursing homes would close their doors. Because of our cultural values, the aging and families are committed to all their members and honoring their fathers and mothers in their old age. Most children would know their grandparents and their extended family members because they live near them or visit them regularly and they're still connected by marriage. There are no air quality alerts because we are good stewards of the environment and therefore people are breathing clean air. No one can remember the last time there was a need for shelters to protect victims of domestic abuse. There aren't any rescue organizations for abuse and abandoned animals because we treat animals with respect. There'd be little poverty. Remember, the single greatest cause of poverty is single parenthood. If mothers married the fathers of their children, we would do more to eliminate poverty than anything else. We'd have retraining programs for lawyers. We wouldn't need them. Not many of them anyway, not as many as we have. Could it happen? Yes. It can happen. And I say that as a premillennialist. I believe that when the Lord comes back, things are going to be terrible. There's nothing in my Bible that says we can't have another reformation first. No man knows the hour or the day of the Lord's coming back. Are we too far gone for God to send a revival that ripens into an awakening and becomes a reformation? No, we are not. But it's never going to happen until God's people humble themselves, seek his face, and pray, and turn from their wicked ways and say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Transform me by your Holy Spirit. I'm not going to let the world squeeze me into its mold. I want to be transformed. I want to be metamorphosized. I want to know what your will is for me. For me. And I'm ready to sign the check and let you fill in the amount. I'm ready to sign the book and let you write the chapters. When you do that, you'll discover that God's will for your life is good. It's the source of joy. It is acceptable. It's tailor-made. And it is complete. I believe it can happen. I don't know if it will. But that decision is being made. One person, one family, one church, one community at a time. It's got to begin somewhere. Why not here? It's got to begin with somebody. Why not you? Got to begin sometime. Why not now? God bless you, and God bless the United States of America.
0: Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes our study entitled America at the Crossroads. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you right there. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on that donate button on the homepage. Join us again next time on the air or online for more evidence and answers.